everyone. I'm Ami Parbu, Managing Partner of Axion Venture Lab, and welcome to an exclusive season of FinTech for the People. I'm excited to be back with the stories behind the work we do and the people who are driving truly inclusive FinTech innovation in every corner of the world. Special thanks to my colleague, Matt Shar, who was hosting the previous season of FinTech for the People dedicated to Web3, crypto, and financial inclusion. If you're tuning in for the first time, Axion Venture Lab is an early stage investor in fintech startups. We believe in the power of fintech to reach those who've been left behind. And over the past decade, we've invested in over 60 startups across Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the US. In this special season of the podcast, we'll be showcasing four discussions that happened during our Fintech for Inclusion Global Summit earlier this year. The summit brought together over 250 entrepreneurs, investors, and other practitioners in the inclusive fintech space. We just couldn't help to share a few of these conversations so that those of you who weren't able to attend could still learn from the conversations. This first panel we're bringing to you today is about embedded finance. Embedded finance has caught fire in the fintech space, and at Venture Lab, we view it as a powerful vehicle for financial inclusion. In this discussion, I sat down with four CEOs on how they're building innovative financial solutions on top of platforms and how the space is primed for new opportunities in the future. These CEOs are working across credit, payments, and insurance, and in very different geographies. Thank you to Susie Ferreira of Gini, Vahid Monajem of Nomanini, Jihan Abbas of Lamy, and Rajiv Agarwal of Innovati Technologies for the great conversation. Before I get started with questions, I'll just give our, our panelists a chance to introduce themselves and their companies, what they do. So um, I'll start, Rajiv, with you. I'm Rajiv Agarwal. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of uh, Innovity. We are using payment technologies in an unconventional way to uh, solve the problem of rising cost of acquisition that businesses are facing because digital marketing has equalized access to consumers. So while uh, all of us have been benefiting from the access to tools, whether it's a Google or a Facebook, etc., to access a target consumer, I guess somewhere, if we are able to access them, so is our competition. And that equalization has actually led to an over 80% increase in the cost of conversion. And which is one of the reasons why you see uh, CAC becoming a more bigger and bigger problem over the past few years, especially so for smaller businesses who don't have uh, the capacity to fight that as easily. So we have been solving this by using payment technologies in an unconventional way to help businesses to collaborate with other businesses who ta- want to target the same consumer. So we do this by helping them discover such collaborations, design certain kinds of purchase tools, and then finally des- deliver the purchase tools at the point of uh, payment. We process close to about $10 billion worth of transactions uh, annually uh, from India. And uh, uh, in the enterprise market, in the grocery, fashion, uh, healthcare, and electronics market, we have close to about a 75% market share. We have uh, started moving into the mid-market and the smaller merchants where today we are growing very rapidly. It's about 40% of our business profile. So happy to be here and uh, look forward to engaging more in the discussions. Thanks. Hi, everyone. I'm Jihan. I'm the founder of Lamy. Lamy is an insurance as a service platform and API. One of the main problems that we're trying to solve is really the fact that across Africa and also in developing countries, there's a very low insurance penetration, which is less than 3%. 
So what we've done is we've digitized the value chain uh, into a platform and API that businesses are able to use to plug and uh, embed insurance products into goods and services or platforms that where they're selling their goods. The goal was really to contextualize the sale of insurance products because um, I think that's one of the key reasons why uptake was very low. So we're, we're really, um, you know, trying to bring the insurance products to the customer at the right point in time to ensure that they're able to have a safety net. But it's a pleasure to be here. Good morning, everyone. My name is Vahid. I'm CEO of Nomanini. At Nomanini, we're on a mission to improve the businesses of small retailers uh, across Africa. We do that by providing them with over-the-counter payments so they can facilitate transactions with all counterparties, whether it's mobile money or mobile airtime, and attract more customers to their, to their point of sale. We provide them with credit tools so they can buy more stock. And then we also provide them with third-party service access so they can more easily manage their business. Our primary uh, product really is a, a retailer till point from which they can facilitate all those, uh, those different products. But we've recently branched into embedded finance uh, with some FMCG companies, and I'm keen to tell uh, that story. We're particularly focused on some of the underserved smaller markets uh, that don't have the economies of scale. And a kind of a key to our success is we have a, a multi-tenant platform, which we can really easily deploy and make these services available in smaller, uh, less served markets. Thanks. Hello, everyone. My name is Suzy Ferreira. I'm founder and CEO at Gini. Our mission, similar to you guys, is to ensure that small retailers, corner shops, and also restaurants, small restaurants, have access to credit because we believe in the platform that credit can be to drive growth and prosperity. On a personal basis, I have experienced credit, you know, having gone bankrupt as when I was eight, nine years old. Uh, and then my mom taking credit again, being able to rebuild our families again. So I truly believe that credit can drive prosperity. And uh, we brought to market this new concept of the invisible bank. And what we're doing is to ensure that we are able to power marketplaces, these large ecosystems where these small businesses are already operating, they're familiar with. So we bring all the financial technology inside those marketplaces so they can experience credit in a very frictionless way, in a very instantaneous way. And we can also drive, reduce, we can reduce costs as well because we're able to leverage data uh, of all these transactions that are hap happening in the platforms. Also, we're able to collect repayments directly from the sales that they originate in those platforms. So this is what we're here to talk about today. And thanks. Thank you. And, and Susie, maybe I'll start with you because you touched on why and how how kind of your solution is embedded. But maybe you can take us through the journey of, did you start by sort of embedding within platforms or were you working direct? I think each of you have a different path to moving to embedded. So why, why did you decide to go this route? When I first had these uh, initial ideas about embedded lending, of course, the name didn't exist, right? This was like back in 2018. And my vision was always to build this, uh, first of all, actually, uh, just a, a background. I was working in banking, so I was banking very large corps. And uh, it always striked me how they were treated with this like relationship approach, you know, like very much more uh, structured transactions according to their needs and so on. They were very respected as large corps, right? And it really bothered me because it reminded me of my father, like being the true entrepreneur, the driving force of the economy in Brazil, being absolutely crushed by banks. So I was thinking, how can I bring that sort of structured transactions to these small guys? So that was the beginning of the thinking. 
I spent some time then uh, in a company called Rails Bank. So we were actually, I was part of the founding team back then. And the idea was to build the new rails of, uh, of a bank to allow other fintechs to build new, like standalone banks effectively. But for me, that didn't actually close the equation. I was like, I don't think we need more banks. Perhaps, you know, it would be really interesting if we could make banking invisible like payments because I also spend, spend some time working in a payments company in the UK. So I thought, what if we could make like, you know, the experience of banking also embedded, also transparent and invisible. So we started with this idea and we thought we're going to market with this, uh, the concept of a digital credit account. And the idea is there that through this account, SMBs can instantly borrow money like on one tap. Our vision was how can we make access to credit as instant and like accessible as water and electricity? So we're coming from a very like infrastructure thinking. And then we thought, and then to make that happen, it needs to be infrastructure. So we need to plug in this somewhere where they are already operating. Like you have electricity and water in your house, you have credit plugged in, your, in, in this ecosystem, your operating system where they're selling or buying their products. So that's what the concept was. But of course, it became known as Embedded Lending only in 2020. That was great for us because suddenly there was a name to what we were trying to do. Yes, I think our, our journey was, was quite different. So our, as I said, our primary product is an application that sits on a terminal on the countertop of a retailer uh, that provides uh, the broad range of services. And we've been working in a large part with Setter Bank, Africa's biggest bank, that's been rolling out these services uh, across their markets. One of the kind of partnerships that was uh, on the go was we were working with Setter Bank and Nestle, where Nestle was opening up their um, distribution channels for Setter Bank to roll out these services to small merchants. During COVID, something interesting happened, which was the the speed at which you could acquire merchants with all these disruptions was slowing down, but the need for credit by retailers in order for them to keep operating their businesses was just getting more severe. Um, and that's really, so yeah, about two years ago, kind of midway through the lockdowns, the MD of Nestle in that region came and said, hey, look, could we just break out the credit component on its own? and make that available to our merchants. And uh, you know, we've built quite a modular system, so uh, it wasn't a huge push for us to expose just the credit aspect and embed it into their value chains. And one of the interesting things that's happening um, is that the big FMCG players are digitizing their the last mile of delivery. This has been paper-based for the last forever, but is rapidly digitizing. And we were able to make credit available inside that ordering management system. And so, yeah, so technically it's pretty straightforward. The harder thing we found was just making it work operationally when you have to train field reps and everyone else. But I think we can get into more detail on that later. Our journey was very, very different when we first launched. Uh, the first product that we decided to launch was a car insurance app. And the reason we decided to do that was because you know, I'm sure you all feel this way, but insurance is not really um, the first thing you think about purchasing when you when you get up in the morning. So we wanted to uh, start off with a product that everybody bought, like car insurance was a, it's a mandatory product. People understood it. They've been buying it for a very long time. So we started off with that. But over time, we started to get a lot of requests for the use of our technology to be able to plug in other products into other platforms. So from there, we started thinking, um, you know, what kind of use cases can we create where we're combining the insurance product and the industry or uh, sector 
to be able to, you know, provide these relevant insurance products. So we tested out so many different kinds of models, so many different kinds of products. Some of the interesting ones that we, we do today are, for example, we provide insurance products to buy now, pay later and asset financing platforms. And through that, we're offering embedded credit default insurance. We're also offering embedded asset insurance and credit life insurance. And I think some of the interesting things that we learned is really that, you know, some of these products that we were, we were offering are very new in the market. Some of them don't exist or a lot of insurance companies who are the credit, I mean, they take the risk from us. We're not really um, as forthcoming to some of these new initiatives. So for us, it was, it was really about uh, showcasing how they're able to access new markets through these digital platforms. So essentially trying to show them that actually the brokers of the future are really these digital platforms where you're able to now plug in and, uh, you know, create uh, relevant use cases for, for insurance products. So we've tested out a few other different kinds of models, but I think the key thing was really just to really contextualize that sale of insurance products. Because when you're the uptake of an insurance product, let me give you an example. If you're, if you're buying a laptop online and somebody offers you insurance at that point in time, your, your likelihood of purchasing that insurance is significantly higher than you going out and trying to find this insurance product on your own. So we're really trying to, you know, bring those products, to, you know, at that right moment in time where you're most likely to, to purchase it. For us, we actually started uh, working with uh, large enterprises and primarily providing them with APIs and software, which would help them to embed the payment transaction into their entire flow of accounting. So allow for straight through reconciliation, allow for operational efficiency, better dispute management, etc. That's how we started off. And um, I'm just sort of give, going to give the journey. And I, I, th I think it was interesting for us. It was revealing for us uh, as to how we discovered uh, the power of in-context payments or embedded payments. So this was going on well. And then this fundamentally was embedded because we were never visible from the outside. We were a part of a SAP reconciliation system or a part of an operational dispute management system, a part of a CRM system. But at the end of it, we were processing payments. And then as a part of our expansion, we decided to take some of our solutions to the smaller mid-market merchants. And when we were doing that, we had a very interesting insight. So I remember this being in Bhubaneswar, which is a small town on the east coast of India. And uh, we're visiting merchants out there. And this, we're talking about a period of like 2018-19. By the time e-commerce in India had already grown up, you know, you had the Walmarts and the Amazons and all occupying a lot of mind space, if not the wallet space. So uh, we were meeting these merchants and uh, small electronic shops who were selling mobile phones, power chargers, your screen guards, etc. And we, we had actually partnered with uh, some NBFCs and we were looking at saying, okay, you know, can we extend loans to them? And uh, so we met the shopkeeper, one Mr. Gupta, and he uh, gave us a very interesting feedback. He said, look, you know what, my goods are not selling. So what will I do by taking a loan from you? If I take a loan from you, all I will do is take that loan and refinance an existing loan that I've taken. My problem today is that I'm not able to sell my goods. I know my consumers who live near my shop are still buying mobile phones, but they're not buying from me any longer. So my problem uh, has shifted. I, my problem today is not cash flow. My problem today is that my sales is getting affected. And uh, it's not as if the consumer's habits have changed. It's not as if the consumer's not using a mobile phone any longer. But the way they're discovering products the way they are making purchase choices has shifted. And I don't know how to participate in it. So that led us to starting to think about payments a little differently. And we said, you know, we often look at payments as only the movement of money from a buyer to a seller. But can we start looking at the purchase that is happening behind the payments? And can we start looking at the purpose that is happening behind the purchase? So 
and that started giving us some interesting insights and that sort of led to the evolution to embedded payments where we said that you know if i as a consumer if i'm walking into a hospital and you can at the end of the day say fine i'm going to do a transaction on a point of sale machine maybe pay 10 dollars for a for a doctor's fee but my state of mind is very different and when i'm when i'm in a hospital and i'm paying for that fee uh, the purpose in my mind is very different. The purpose is that potentially there is a relative of mine who uh, needs to get treated and I hope everything will go well. Whereas when I'm in a fashion shop, the purpose is very different. In a fashion shop, I'm celebrating life. When I'm in a when I'm an electronic shop, I'm talking about aspiration. Can I get the larger television at home? So we realized that the traditionally financial services had been divorced from the purchase process. You know, you choose what you want to buy and then you come to the point of checkout and pay. But if you were to uh, marry the purpose with the purchase and the purchase with the payment, you could create experiences which are very contextual. And those experiences had significantly higher value for the consumer because they were touching the consumer's state of mind. And if it helped the consumer buy better, automatically a merchant would sell more. So the problem that started from what Mr. Gupta told us that, look, I have a problem of not being able to sell, forget giving me loans, translated into us uh, looking deeper into the problem of payments starting to understand what payments eventually at the end of it is solving a purpose, whether it was celebrating life, whether it was looking at better healthcare, whether it was fulfilling your aspirations. And if you could embed payments into the consumer's journey of when they need it, where they need it, then it can start creating a big difference for the merchant who was providing those goods and lead to uh, the required acceleration. So that's been a journey of sort of discovering, if you like, embedded finance uh, accidentally. Yeah, it's such a powerful story. And I think we call it embedded finance, but I think it should be called contextualized finance. Yeah, because I as you're so. saying, it's all about from a customer side, you know, how do I make this finance relevant and understand something complicated like insurance or credit or payments, you know, in a way that's relevant for my life at this moment in time. So I, I almost want to turn to how you then operationalize that and make it happen, which is partnering with these big platforms or these big, you know, retailers or whoever your kind of technology is, the enterprises that you're working with. So I'm, I'm curious what the value proposition is. How do you go about working with that side of the equation and then doing essentially the B2B to C, right? The not just selling to them, but making that value proposition in that technology work for end customers um, that they serve. So maybe Jihan, maybe I'll start with you because I know you've thinking about this a lot. <laughs> I think one of the key things was taking care of the end-to-end -end journey of the, ins the insurance journey. So being able to price the products in real time, underwrite them, issue every, like the policy documents. Of course, insurance has so many complexities. So making sure that it's uh, very understandable for, for these end customers was really one of the main things we tried to do. So our API caters for the entire journey up until claims. So you're able to buy the product, but also claim and also track uh, your claim journey as well. And I think for a lot of the digital platforms that we wanted to partner with, um, because of how complex insurance was, they didn't want to, they, they never offered it because they could never have offered it due to the complexity behind it. It's a whole other business if they were thinking about, you know, building out this entire platform to manage insurance, managing relationships with insurance companies. So what we had done is we had taken care of the end-to-end -end journey with the technology. We also integrated our now we have over 30 insurance companies offering various products. So they're the suppliers of products. And basically what happens is that these, these digital platforms use our APIs and plug them into their journey uh, to offer the products. I think for a long time, 
when we first started out, a lot of the, let me give you, I'll give an example of uh, Safaricom, which is a, a huge uh, mobile carrier in Kenya. So they, they tried to offer insurance products, but one of the key problems that they faced uh, was actually the, the fact that although the purchase process was uh, digital, once a customer had purchased, that information was not being sent to the insurance company. So when a claim was filed, the policy did not exist. So for a company like that, having this end-to-end API to be able to plug in and offer insurance products was actually a really important value proposition. And I think for the customer as well, of course, as a customer, you're looking for something that's super simple, easy. Insurance is not really a, a product that you may, may, may not necessarily want to purchase, but if it's offered in the right way, you're able to offer the value the right kind of value at that point in time. I think we've seen that a lot of end customers actually want to be uh, onboarded onto these products. But we also had, yeah, we spent a lot of time trying to see, should you embed it with the digital platform fully so that the customer doesn't have to opt into these products? Or do you give the customer the choice to be able to opt into these kinds of products? And I think because of the education piece uh, with insurance or the la- also the lack of trust between the customer and insurance companies, which was, uh, of course, perpetuated over a long period of time, We've seen that actually fully embedding the product, getting the customer to go through the claims journey, seeing that it works and it's exactly what it is that they wanted has been the best way for us to be able to integrate and increase uptake of insurance products. When we started in 2019, first of all, we developed the digital credit wallet, right? We needed to prove the concept to begin with, even though we had already started pitching the idea to the biggest platform in Brazil was iFood. I don't know if you guys know, it's the biggest food delivery company in Brazil. And they were actually warm to the idea. They were looking to the likes of WeChat in in China, Alibaba, Mercado Livre in Brazil, and also Amazon. They were like, okay, I get the point and I want to do this. But first we needed to prove the concept, right? Because the conversation was like, okay, guys, how do you know what you're doing? You're doing credit, you're just starting. So we brought this product that was quite unique in the Brazilian market. And the idea was let's help SMBs or these small retailers to stop using overdrafts and credit cards to pay for their inventory or general corporate purposes. So we tested a lot the product and then they're like, okay, not yet. When we started getting a lot of traction and NPS was like sky high, they saw the, the value proposition and then we, we started integrating with them. Actually, it started in a very white label approach and we still do this nowadays. We use all the components that we already have to make it very seamless. They can start uh, the onboarding process. We have the end-to-end journey, the same as you guys. So from the onboarding to the data ingestion, data uh, structuring, data enrichment, underwriting, servicing, and so on. So they used all the components that we already had. They were able to prove the concept inside the platform. They were able to prove product market fit inside their platform. So then that caught the eyes of a lot of uh, new platforms in Brazil because there is this huge competition, right? So if you are iFood, there is only so much like you can do in terms of platform fees, right? You charge 20% or so. And you have to find new ways of monetizing clients that were very expensive to be acquired and also new ways of adding extra value. And if you don't do so, your competitor is going to do. So you have Happy and you have a few others, Goomer and so on. And everybody looking at iFood because they are the leaders in the market. So they started, actually, Rappi started seeing the same, like, wow, if iFood is now ahead of the game, I also need to, to start playing this game. So then you see a lot of these platforms coming over to speak to Genie, even though we were very young, like just starting, this PR effect with very little, very much inbound. 
and the easy of start, you know, and this competition between them really, really benefited us. But from a benefit for platform perspective, right, as I said, one, you're able to increase your platform fees because the more you help these businesses to, to buy inventory and they can grow more, the more they sell, the more you make money as a platform. But also there is a, a financial health that you're establishing because obviously these platforms dealing with very small businesses, there is a lot of churn. So this can actually reduce the churn in the platform. And also as a platform, you want more engagement because of all this competition. You want them to be sticky instead of going to happy to stay at iFood. So again, they see this potential of bringing financial products to make the relationship stickier. So that's it. Basically, um, yeah, one word led to another, one platform led to another. We're now with seven platforms, all the largest in Brazil. And for us, this is just our go-to market. We're dealing with techie savvy platforms that we made a, a conscious decision of going with the e-commerce side once because in one side we get all this digital footprint and it's all digitized already. We don't have to do that work. We ingest the data and we structure and enrich the data. On the second pillar for us, it's very important to be able to collect the repayments from those cash flows. So again, e-commerce was very important for us for that, uh, for that reason. But of course, there is a huge market out there with ERPs, accounting softwares, potentially the industry themselves. We were approached by a company you probably know, like Hosim. They are a cement company and they have a, a number of uh, franchisees in Brazil. And they were saying, look, we've been looking for a solution like yours for years. We've been working with Santander, like, and customers have to always, they're repeatedly buying cement from us, but they have to always come in and put all this financial, all these papers, the financial information they don't have, super frictional processes to get a new loan. And we just want this recurrent thing without having to put much effort from the side of the franchises. So we started this uh, MVP with them. We proved the concept. It's amazing. It's just that right now there's so much in our hands that we decided to focus. Let's only focus on e-commerce, but the number of platforms now are like massive. And uh, just on the integrations, integration side, the vision here is to be very much like Stripe. What Stripe did for payments, we're looking to do for credit. So be this gateway, super easy to integrate, actually a pleasant journey for developers and making sure they don't spend a lot of time on integration because we've done all the hard work and we're putting simple APIs for them to integrate too. And that concept, again, it's been validated. Of course, there is a lot yet to be learned, but it's been validated as we develop as a business. And um, yeah, it's basically the future of embedded credit in Brazil. Yeah, and, and you touched on sort of my next question, which is embedded finance is very high on the tech, you know, versus fin, which is what we've seen with this kind of initial wave of digital financial services. The technical integration is so critical for how you, you know, scale up your solutions. And uh, you, you kind of uh, mentioned this with, uh, with working with Nestle and with FMCGs. I'd, I'd love to hear more about what the technical integration process looks like, what solutions you found to kind of make that easier um, with some of these established players. Yeah, let me quickly maybe uh, describe our, our user journey on the better credit side. So uh, what we do is we essentially credit score based on the order history in an order management system that's already running. Then we train the delivery people who are delivering the stock. Here are your 12 cases of Nestle product who typically sell cash on delivery 
for them to make the offer that there's credit available and the retailer can then choose to pay cash or can get access to credit in order to purchase stock. And then after that, the repayment, we disperse the, the sorry, we disperse the goods as, uh, or the loan as goods. And lastly, we, we collect between seven and 21 days later via mobile money. So we kind of are integrated into kind of multiple stacks there, mobile money for collection, order management systems for data and to kind of mark invoices as paid so that goods can be released. And yeah, I mean, integrations are difficult. It's a very fragmented space. Every FMCG manufacturer is kind of pushing its own order management system. And yeah, I don't think there is an easy solution. One of the things we do try to punt for is kind of work at the multinational level. Uh, and you know, your last question around uh, you know, what's the value proposition for partners Again, in this world, in the convenience retail world, everyone loves credit. You know, the retailer can sell more, can stock more and sell more in a, in a very uh, credit-starved environment. The distributor can make more sales. The FMCG manufacturer can make more sales. But one of the things that, that Nestle was really clear on was, you know, we're speaking to an MD who's responsible for 23 markets from South Africa to Eritrea. Uh, and it's a very fragmented space. Um, and being able to adapt and make the services available and partner with different balance sheet providers and all that was really, really important to them. Um, so, yeah, so we do try, you know, we do have to go through the, the operational lift of, of integrating, but we try to integrate with multinational platforms so that we can then uh, spread that benefit across uh, multiple markets. The last thing I'll say is there's a lot of... Um, Emphasis on the integration, yeah, that's a very long lead time thing to get right, and I think we can templatize a lot more to make it make it faster and easier. But it, it, there always is is a time lag there. One of the things I was surprised by, though, is even though this is embedded, there still is so much human operational work around educating and informing of this offer that uh, it's not as you know, it's not just computers speaking to computers. There still is the human element in uh, in activating it. With the end customers, with, with training people to, to speak to others. And that's as important. Like operational integration is, is as important as technical integration. No, I was just going to ask a question, curiosity. And you're saying like the lead times for integration, do you, do you integrate like the full thing at once or do you have like iterative approach? Like is there any component that is very important for them to start operating? Essentially, if we, we just need to get access to historical order data. We need to validate that it's quality data, uh, and then uh, we need to have access to mark invoices as paid. Other than, than that, we also have to, when I say operational integration, we then also have to enable a distributor to accept cash and their whole daily settlement processes to work. And that's, that's the bigger, harder, messier bit than, mm -hmm. than just the system-to-system -system integration. Rajiv, maybe I'll turn to you with this next question and uh, then we'll open it up for, for questions too. But so much of the focus in embedded finance is on the, the power of this. It's seamless, it's contextualized, it's good for customers. We don't talk as much about the risks from a consumer protection perspective, from data privacy, from just, you know, the challenges that could arise when you make something as seamless as embedded solutions can be. So I'm curious how you think about the risk element what you all are doing to, you know, combat some of those. That's, that's an interesting point, yeah. I'll have to give an Indian view here. And uh, uh, India has, of course, been very, very different, but I'll give a little bit of the context here. So India, as I'm sure you're aware that the government actually took on upon itself to build a lot of public digital infrastructure, uh, which has been made available virtually free of cost. So starting with 
identity which was aadhar uh, followed by payments which was upi then followed by uh, account aggregator model which is the aa model uh, where essentially information about your accounts your banking accounts your banking information is available uh, through apis in a centralized manner and all of these were regulated entities you know we ourselves are for example a regulated entity they all regulated entities so you'll have to take it in the context of india i'm not sure how much these examples will apply in the uh, in the other markets so what has been done in india has been very different in the sense that this has been very consciously thought through layer after layer that you need an identity then you need information to be organized behind the identity then you need a consent mechanism in order for you to access the information then you need an anonymization of the information itself so that it can be utilized only through its derived metrics rather than uh, the actual raw information so i think there's a lot of layering a very conscious layering that has been built in india which is of course way ahead of the rest of the world including the united states is way way ahead of how the layering has been built so as a result what happens in india is that uh, right now and and of course the regulator has come in very heavily over the past 6 uh, months in india uh, to shut down all people who were trying to do this collection on their own they have uh, i think the you know my friends on the lending side would be aware of it arun is sitting here and smiling and winning they heavily come down on anybody who was trying to uh, get away with this by trying to uh, acquire information on their own and they've said that look we will enable the public infrastructure we will enable you access to data we will enable you access to identity we will enable you access to movement of money but it has to be done through consent it has to be done through anonymization it has to be done using the identity which has been created for the country so i think we are facing lesser of those challenges far far lesser of those challenges versus probably many other places uh, who could be facing but this is a, it's a, it's an interesting problem now the, the the i think the interesting part in this is to be able to separate the raw data from the purpose to which you want to put the data to work and that's where there is a interesting intelligence to be applied and that's where also coming to the previous question that you raised how your uh, how your stack that gets built up uh, many a times the api stacks get built up from the from a perspective of convenience to integrate whereas they actually need to be built up from the perspective of convenience of purpose what was the purpose behind that so if it was all it was supposed to do is to tell me that whether this person is credit worthy that's all it should do there's no reason for it to be sharing with me more information and uh, that separation of purpose if you do very consciously in building up the tech stack then you find that the privacy issues get well addressed unfortunately a lot of tech guys go overboard and you know they believe uh, might as well just take these two additional pieces of information they might be of use sometime or the other and then that those two pieces of information are lying in some sql database out there and uh, you know uh, creating hassles out there so so i think it's that conscious development of uh, purpose uh, uh, through the stack building purpose and connecting it into the uh, into the it stack which is which has done wonders for india i mean it's it's crazy it's the pace at which you can develop apps in uh, india the most complex of lending apps out there exactly one api call to get uh, consent and then after consent you can through repeated layers get uh, information going right back to uh, you know years of history of the of the consumer and that also every time and the consent is only for that transaction so the second time the person can't use the consent again so i think it's if you connect purpose to again the uh, technology uh, design life is easy otherwise tech guys Just can do everything i would love to like sit down with you and go through that because you guys are so well ahead of brazil it's not even funny right comparing india so this uh -huh. is something that would be really really useful by the way 
And in our case, it's a very big like struggle and like challenge. Of course, it's the early beginning for us. And we decided to build the whole stack of credit and the products on top and the service. Perhaps we've built quite a lot and, and we're trying to, to solve a lot of different challenges. So instead of like trying to do the full data challenge on our own, what we do is to partner with some cutting edge companies as well that are only specifically focusing on that. And they are helping us building the pipes, getting the data, getting all the cons well, the consents, we, we, we get the consents, but also managing the consents. You're always having to be updated and having all the governance as well, right? As a startup, like in our case, we're 25 people and making sure that all that data is safe and, you know, that we have all the consents. It's a big, like, it's a big challenge for us. How about on the other side? I mean, you think about the risks, there's data privacy, there's the consumer protection on that element. There's also transparency around pricing, around, uh, Jan, you were talking about, you know, do we embed this insurance, you know, or does does a customer get to opt into it? Like, how do you think about the kind of fine print that when you open an insurance policy or you open, you know, you, you get a loan, you can kind of read and see, you don't, you don't do that in the same way with these products. So how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I think for us, the, one of the most important things was simplifying the terms, making sure that, you know, it's provi it's given to the customer in a way that they can understand and words that they can understand as well. Because, of course, insurance has all these crazy terms that are quite difficult. So that was really one of the main things that we were, we were focused on. And at the same time, also giving the customer options, like being able to provide them with uh, different kinds of options, like different kinds of underwriter options, different kinds of limits so that they can actually customize and personalize their policy for themselves to fit the risks that they have as an individual. And I think that also didn't exist for a long time. At Gini, we actually built the dashboard for credit because for us it was very important that they know exactly how much they are paying. And it's a digital revolving credit. So it's a recurrent product, right? They always, they always use. And every time they repay, the money comes back. So we want to make them see that uh, and know exactly how much they are paying. Because of course, the product that we're trying to disrupt is the Brazilian Cheque Especial. I don't know if anybody knows of Brazil, but this is this is like the most toxic product and SMBs, MSMEs are using that like as the normal working capital for them, you know? And they get into this, like it's an overdraft, but it's really, really bad in Brazil. And there's this snowball effect. So for us, transparency was the absolute core of the product. But on the other hand as well, Given that we're dealing with platforms and obviously they want to know what is it that we're doing with their customers, right? So at all times, because it's a B2B2B, we have to have the transparency with the partner as well, right? And and in one side, obviously, we're the, the connecting layer between all the demand and all the platforms and the funding providers, as you mentioned, right? And there are certain like criteria of the funding provider that I have to abide to. One of them is minimum pricing. And then I have to be able to be very transparent with the platform to say, actually, this is the source of funding. That's why we're charging this, right? And of course, the dream is to be able to replace some of this, like obviously we're de dealing with commercial asset managers. You know, the, the dream is to develop that with better sources of capital, like people like in this room, hopefully, and that we can substantially lower that price and be able to then, you know, bring a, a much better pricing for the customer on the other side. But transparency with the with the partner is absolutely key. I just um, want to echo the simplicity point of um, the loans that we offer. We intentionally make simple and even the algorithms we make simple so that on a single 
a a five sheet of paper in sixteen point font, you can present how this works, how you'll be charged, and how you'll repay to the end user. Because otherwise, if it's more complicated than that, no matter how how hard you explain, it will be in, it will be fundamentally intransparent. Uh, so we we definitely believe in simplicity. I think the other thing is just kind of making sure you stick to your mission. And if you end up offering loans and the fees exceed the margins that these merchants are making, then maybe those are loans you should not be advancing. For me, one of the things that I'm really hoping for is that there'll be a lot more permeability between the formal balance sheets that are that are underwriting lending and understand risk and the FMCG manufacturers that are advancing uh, stock and have a vested interest in more that that stock being advanced so that they can reduce the costs. I mean, ultimately, these stores should be getting 30 or 60 day terms for free, like like modern supermarkets do, uh, and that's hopefully where where this ends up. So I think we've got a long way to go, but uh, if we look back to what we're doing and stick to our mission, that's where we would, we would want to push it. Join us next time for another panel from the FinTech for Inclusion Global Summit. This time we'll talk about how fintech companies are balancing technology with human touch, particularly as they support the financially excluded through the pandemic.